0: Turner. And Seth. Oh, Seth.
1: Yes, Rob? We got a new sponsor.
0: Sound the alarm.
1: I love the new sponsor alarm. Yes, Banzoogle. You've heard of them, right? I have, actually. Bandzoogle provides websites and electronic press kits for thousands of musicians and other artists around the world.
0: Including Grammy award-winning artists, is that correct?
1: Yes, many are Grammy award winners, but I don't want smaller bands to be turned off because even a small garage band or any... You know, even regional bands and that sort of thing can benefit from this perhaps more because there's more upside incrementally for a smaller act, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Here's what the deal is. They got a simple step-by-step system, which allows you to choose from all these mobile-friendly templates. 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 And customize your design and your content with just a few clicks. You can have a website that fits the, uh, the feel of your band. And is also professional. And built, this whole system is built for musicians by
0: musicians. Ooh, that's key. So they really understand what the musician wants.
1: They will know what you want on a website or an EPK. Like a, you want a clear and concise uh, way to sell your merch and maybe your music as well. A lot of these bands sell their shows. Or your CDs, whatever the case may be. You want a tour calendar that's easy to access, easy to read, easy to figure out how to buy tickets and show times, opening acts, you know, detailed tour calendar. Uh, you also want uh, to grow your own fan list and have professional-looking newsletters that go out to
0: them. That All this stuff that's like the face of the band. All in one spot, so you don't have your calendar in one place and importing it and you're... And your email list and another, et cetera, all in one place, huh, Rob? Yeah, they also integrate the Twitter and Instagram and SoundCloud. The Twitter.
1: The Twitter. I love Twitter. That's Oy the only one I. Vey. Well, I guess I do SoundCloud a little bit. But they can integrate all of this stuff. And they also, mm-hmm. seven days a week, li- live support. Really? Live, live musician friendly. Live bands, support. live support. How about that? Plans are just like over eight bucks a month, which includes hosting. And your own free custom domain name and all that kind of stuff. Go to Banzoogle.com. Start a 30-day free trial. And be sure to use the promo code INSIDEOUT to get 15% off the first year. And you're supporting our show when you do that. That's Banzoogle.com promo code Out to build
0: your website today. Please check them out, friends. Check them out. It takes a second. Press pause. Go ahead and type in your browser. Banzoogle,
1: b a n d z o o g l e dot com and check them out. Thanks, folks. Promo code inside out. And by the way, tax season's coming, Seth. That's right. Don't wait
0: till April and get. Wait a second. It is April. Oh boy, it's getting close. Oh boy. Don't wait till next April and get screwed. Call Polay. I always feel like this time of year is
1: that people may be reassessing. They're maybe not happy with maybe their own work on their taxes or whoever's doing them. Maybe they're late. And remember, if you're an entertainer, that includes athletes, they work with a lot of athletes. Poley they Clark do. Do,
0: Is it poleclark.com? Poleclark.com. Check them out. But give them till the end of April before you call them, because they're very busy. Very, very busy. No, I'm kidding. Check them out. Poleclark.com. Wonderful financial advisors, business management for the music entertainment industry. Yes. All right, buddy.
2: Hey,
1: buddy.
0: There's only one place you can
1: hear inside out, and that is...
2: this podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com
1: yes the osiris podcast network we are proud proud member
0: i gotta give a quick Shout out of thanks. Oh, do you? Hold on now, everybody. Hold on to your seats. Rob's about to belt out a thank you, Joe Kendrick of
1: WNCW. First of all,
0: WNCW
1: is a WNCW, W-N-C-W. such a great station. I listen to it whenever I'm in
0: Nashville and sometimes when I'm not. They are a fantastic station up in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains. Oh, I had a dream about that the other day. I'll tell you later. Yeah, tell me off there.
1: But uh, Joe Kendrick uh, and WNCW are great. Uh, People who listen to this show, you might want to particularly be aware of Wednesday night programming. Mm-hmm. Has a dead hour and then has uh, you know a lot of live music and unusual rare stuff, Pink Floyd stuff.
0: We've talked about this Into on this show the show before. Go back to our uh, our uh, curveball
1: ball episode. He also hosts Southern songs and stories. He's working on a wagon wheel. He's actually getting mm-hmm. his ass kicked, as he said, working on this episode about one song called Wagon Wheel. Oh yeah, which I've seen done many many times by different bands. I when I hear the song's name, I think of um, Bob Dylan. Darius, well, it is sort of a Dylan song. There's a great story behind it, but mm-hmm. I don't want to... Joe will, Joe will walk us through that. He's got three interviews and nine pages of notes, and that was a week ago. It's probably a lot more than that. But I was once at one of those um, Southern Ground, Zach Brown Festival. Oh, yeah, festivals. yeah, yeah. And Darius Rucker, and this was in South Carolina. From Hootie and the Blowfish? Yeah, the 95% of the talent of Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, the rest of the band is pretty dismissible. Darius was the songwriter and the charismatic performer. He and, He's fantastic. And he sat in with them. And not only did they do Wagon Wheel, but they did it. uh, Zach Brown, I don't know if he still does, but at that point, he had like a Stone-style stage that's like in the crowd, a long catwalk out to a second stage that's in the crowd, and they did it with Darius in that little stage. It was really cool. The Mm. whole place was singing along with it. It was great. But our thank you to him is because we're putting together um, for May 1st, which will be the second anniversary of the Colonel
0: Bruce Hampton should we do May 1st or May 4th so it can be the, May the 4th be with you and kind of go on that whole thing?
1: Um, that's cheesy and a pun. I think I'd rather do it. May 1st happens to be Wednesday okay, and it's the okay. actual anniversary. Okay. Okay. And okay. it's Vas- right after Vassar Clements' 90th birthday. Would have been his 90th. Would have been his 90th birthday. So we're go- we're putting together a whole special on that. and It's, um, it's
0: called a very special.
1: But the, as far as the current, we might even have some of that uh, Knapp interview too. Johnny Knapp.
0: I I've totally forgot you did that. Yeah, aren't you glad up. you did
1: that? We're gonna. Oh aren't my you glad you did that? We have a jewel, a gem, but we're gonna release a little bit Look of at it. that.
0: Rob, you actually did something and tucked it away and didn't use it, and now it's good that you didn't. Although, Jeez, what's have done that, that before? What's up with that podcast you have? What's the other one called? Oh, you're gonna rag on me, the Timeless Music
1: Podcast. You the, make fun of me? No, it's timeless. <laughs> That's true. It's aptly named. <laughs> but we he Joe uh, came up with some key audio from the
0: WNCW archives we'll find out more about it later. Yes, I but, he sent it. I dusted it off, listened to it today and it is
1: Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Yeah.
0: Thanks.
1: We'll be thanking you again.
0: And again and again.
1: Shout out to Amars Sastria from Anatomy of the Jam. He's the host of the video part of the new
0: Drop, the drop which RJB hosted the most recent episode. So there's two. And it's interesting is you got Osiris doing the Drop video, which is uh which is nice. Sunday I check it out Sunday afternoon evening. It's a quick 5 minutes recap of the week of music. Really great. But yep. on Monday, it's the same information but an audio version but not the same show. So RJ takes over on Monday and does, a, does more in-depth about the news report. Right. And has an interview.
1: An excerpt of one, uh, an interview from the podcast. Hopefully one of ours will be on there someday. Well,
0: they do the excerpt, but they also do, a, he does an interview with... Well,
1: and this one was Joel Cummins of Humphries McGee, who once again was pissy about me. And I, I have a theory as to why he's kind of, kind of, you know, Joel is kind of, has a kind of pissy thing about me. He said kind of in this interview like 40 times. It's like three times a minute. So kind of. But I'm going to wait. We're going to have Kevin Browning on because we have an anniversary of Anchor Drops. Ofreys has a big release. Kevin Browning is going to be on. Who is
0: their manager of Ofreys McGee for those listeners? Manager, bit of a guru,
1: overall great guy. Um, And and I'll talk about why Joel may be cranky toward me in that episode. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Kind of.
0: I don't think he likes you. I think that you think this is a joke. And I think he's kind of annoyed with you for you, you know. I think that you you, uh, overly comment on his Twitter. Uh-huh. And I think that he might be upset about that because uh-huh. you might actually be annoying him. No, kind I've like got another stalker. reason.
1: I've got another reason for him not to like me. I mean, did you turn in tune into that episode? It'll be a checking in with Kevin Browning. When's that going to be? Um, well, here's what I think we're going to do: these two episodes of Peter Owen. Then we're going to do checking in with Yorma and checking in with Kevin Browning. And oh. then we're going to have the the. Uh, Tribute. go ahead
0: i'm actually excited about the yorma one because uh we're reading the book each of us each of us i'm literally reading on the hardcover book and i'm plowing through it and it's it's actually really good
1: thank you cash edwards thank you yorma and, i'm excited um,
0: to talk about it you know i mean and not rob's looking at me he's hitting his head like he's got a gun. no it's not because of the jew part of his family <laughs> although that is interesting though doesn't hurt it you know, doesn't hurt now i understand Salyama, tell me, uh, would you like a kanish while we talk?
1: Eh? And then in the uh, outro, I'm going to talk about the weekend I just had, and Seth will talk
0: about his weekend, I'll talk about a couple other things, but today we sit down with Peter Rowan. Part one, and this was a lengthy interview, but such, it was one of those interviews, Rob, would you agree with this or disagree? We sat down, what was two hours felt like five minutes. It was surreal, it was surreal. Uh, it was very nice of him to be so
1: generous with the time. You know, I noticed when we were, when I was cutting it up, when he first talked to the woman who was taking him to the airport and said she was downstairs, we talked for 40 minutes after that.
0: And we were I, just getting into Jerry at that yeah. point. Yeah. But he also really, in, I felt he enjoyed it. He, he. Uh, after even, after the interview, we talked for about 20 minutes.
1: He called me a historian.
0: Yeah. He was, he, he treated he had the same comments that Colonel Bruce had about you that first time we um, we recorded with Colonel Bruce at Brian uh, Torilliger's house. Hi, Brian. And you you left, and I was st- I was I took Bruce back to his car, and he and I were talking, and he was commenting about hey, that Rob. He, he does his research. He knows his shit. He he, you know, he was like really impressed with the way you research and your knowledge, et cetera. Yeah, that means everything from, coming from the Colonel. And then Rowan said the same thing. They also said you were disgusting, but that's a whole other story. Well, they're just—they're right, and they're right, and they're right. <laughs> but we had just—he had just played
1: the Holiday Hootenanny the night before, and I want to point out that well, this, tell everyone what the Holiday, holiday is. Holiday Hootenanny, is something T Dog puts together every year. He uh, next year's is already booked, December nineteenth, Variety Playhouse.
0: Ooh! But I he doesn't
1: even work. tell us the artist until it's announced. He's really secretive about it, even though. Well, I don't want to say, but um, he that this last year was a Vassar Clements tribute. It was wonderful, and the first set w- was with Jason Carter of Del McCormick Band and Travel McCorry's, Lindsey Pruitt of Stickley Trio, and John Maylander, who tours with Bruce Hornsby and has his own solo record called Forecast, they did all Vassar Clements mm-hmm. songs. And um we're gonna hear some of that in the next episode. Oh okay. Great. Uh I mean in the not that I mean in the part two. tribute in the Vassar Clements episode. Oh, the, okay, okay. No part yeah, two yeah. we've got this episode we've got little bits from that show. But we were only able to get an audience recording, so we only we only use yeah, a little in the interview, yeah. and then full versions at the end. I mean, you'll love... There is no soundboard of that, Rob. You know that, right? Right. Yeah. We'll tell a funny story that relates <laughs> to this podcast that happened between Seth and I during Land of the Navajo. In the Land of the Navajo. That was good. In the la- Oh, it's an amazing version, and that's what ends this episode. But um, let's throw it on over there. Here's a little Our taste ladies of Peter's set. And which, gentlemen... Jeff Moser closed the Hootenanny, but Peter Rowan was sort of the headline before. That's a bluegrass thing. In the old days, the bluegrass... I remember when Flying Ice played with Tony Rice. Tony would play first, and then Flying Ice would play. A lot of times the bluegrass, the headliner plays first. And uh, in that sort of... Uh,
0: the Hootenanny was a tip to that. Here so if that's the case, why did we do the intro after... We, just, we should have just started with Peter. Ladies did you tell Peter Rowan?
1: Sheraton, downtown Atlanta, in the shade of a Christmas tree, and the great Thomas T Dog Helen. And we're sitting with a man who grew up two towns away from me, somehow found the world of country and bluegrass in Boston, went on to be a bluegrass boy, toured with Jerry and Olden in the Way, recorded with Tony Rice, Jerry Douglas, and countless others, fronts the Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band, Big Twang Theory, Twang and Groove. Yeah, and of course, the Free Mexican Air Force. It is the great, wonderful, legendary Peter Rowan. Good morning. Well, Thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the Holiday Hootenanny last
3: night. Absolutely. Oh, it's been a number of years since I've made it out for what that event has evolved into. And was, you know, I was thinking, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I got there and looked around, and it was, became very clear. <laughs> it was a, like a no brainer. <laughs> groove, just groove. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You gave us a lot of the side. you started solo, then you brought
1: Jason out for one and then... Yeah. I mean, does it when you start doing the songs with all the ensemble, does that just fall together? To what extent are you directing them and to what extent are they just, they know the songs and they have a sense for what you want?
3: Well, you know, I'm in a lucky position in that my own songs have become well-known. People play them. So, uh, you know, the big three, Panama Red, Midnight, Moonlight, Land of the Navajo, and then there's the other old and, old and in the way material, you know, and uh, like the Hobo song, uh, which we didn't do last night. But everybody seems to know the tunes. You know, at least they've... Some of them, folks have been introduced to bluegrass through my, my tunes or my music, various incarnations, and... Uh, you know, uh, it all comes down to bluegrass. And uh, e- and yet, you know, drummers and uh, pedal steel players, uh, you know, more rock and roll oriented people, bassists and uh, accordion players. I've written enough material to kind of like... I wrote a lot of material because I wanted the players that I played with to, to have fun. So Midnight Moonlight, I wrote... Uh, getting back into bluegrass after i was touring with a band called Sea train uh... and we re- re- recorded for Capitol records and went to london and uh, were produced by george martin who produced the beatles but as i was leaving that band through uh... my experiences in texas that was my last dates were in texas and i got enamored with the uh... feeling of the music down there so i sought out uh, Flaco Jimenez, and you know the great accordionist, and now I'm playing with people that Flaco taught, and people that grew up listening what I did with Flaco. So what I, what I what I did then seemed a little outside, but now uh, for them it's just part of their world, you know. But they're coming from a Hispanic side of things, uh, and so when I was writing material in San Antonio, thinking of leaving Sea Train going out on my own, which led to Olden and the Way. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to write material that especially people like Dave Grisman and Richard Green, the people that I had been playing with, would find musically interesting. You know, so I wrote this kind of Tex-Mex bluegrass. And uh, with the passing chords, like the chords to Midnight Moonlight, there's a progression of those chords that if you're a player... In bluegrass at the time, you wouldn't have encountered those. Hmm. You know what I mean. And then for a while, it was like, well, that's a tricky song, but it's not tricky really. It's just that <clears throat> it musically has a progression that I thought was uh, I- interesting for the players uh, that I'd be playing with, that I imagined that I'd be playing with. And sure enough, we did. Olden in the way, and Mule Skinner, uh, and uh, <clears throat> and when when jerry garcia heard my tunes he he liked them you know and i'd been struggling on the east coast uh, in a kind of a not exactly isolation but it the east coast mentality in the united states wasn't really receptive to southern in you know in a broad way to to something as as a as well-shaped on its own as bluegrass. You know, somebody might put a banjo in a record here, a banjo there, but bluegrass had its own definition. And as Dave Grisman wrote on the first Old and in the Way record, this was just a continuation of the original bluegrass quest, which for us Yankee Hillbillies was the quest to dive deeply into the soul of the music and and well, as they, as they say nowadays, make it your own, you know, own it, you know. But in those days, there was a question of authenticity, and so Yankees, you know, we had to prove ourselves, and uh, in in that field, we weren't born Southern, but I mean, I would say I was I was raised Southern because uh, I was raised by my family to have the same kind of values as as in general. Uh, southern culture had you know it was a lot of respect for other people and uh, and I had been immersed in uh, southern music since I was a kid I used to go to square dances you know, you know bouncing around doing the do-si-do with the Al-a-man And the grand right and left you know that's
1: buck, is that all buck dancing is that under the umbrella of buck dancing no no buck that's dancing a is a
3: solo <clears throat> solo kind of like uh, like soft shoe or, or uh, that's what bill did uh, Bill did a kind of buck dancing yeah he, he his first uh, gigs were as a dancer and so there's a thing about your body and music right so I grew up you know as a kid square dancing because it was popular and it was a good thing to send the pre-pubescent boys and girls out on a Friday night to the uh, local square dance where there'd be banjos and fiddles and everything like that you know so it was, my body was used to the music I understood it and uh of course, very soon after that, we heard the wam bomb ba bom ba bam boom and uh and started dancing close to girls and that that was Unsquare dancing.
1: <laughs> Where does the Hillbilly Ranch come into this? Because I remember when I was a kid, I vaguely remember it because it's the combat zone of Boston. It's combat the zone. financial district and all that. But there was this wooden log framed place that I always
3: wondered about. Give a little more reference on what you're talking about there, it's Rob. A,
1: it was, well, I want you to tell what the Hillbilly Ranch was. Okay.
3: Um, after World War II, there were a lot of soldiers and sailors disembarking in Boston, Massachusetts through the Boston Naval Yard, and many of them were southern. So a place sprung up called Hillbilly Ranch in Park Square, right behind the Trailway bus station. <laughs> and yes, it was called the Combat Zone <laughs> at the time.
1: For reasons and, that you, people can figure out themselves. It, it
3: was pretty rough, and you weren't allowed to go there. And, and, and it was just too dangerous. <clears throat> it's where... And another part of town close by Haymarket Square was where the old market was. And, I mean, until very recently, those that place was open as a urban market, open-air urban market. I think they probably organized it a little more now. But down by Haymarket Square is where we'd go to get a tattoo, you know. I got a tattoo by a guy named Jack Redcloud, you know, he was a, he was a character. But, it, you know, Shady and Underground, there was like a, you know, there's a lot of mafia in Boston. So. Shout out to Whitey Bulger. Oh, jeez, Yeah. <laughs> oh, Whitey. <laughs> How did you let it get so out of hand? Oh, dear. um, Rest his soul. Um, but the Hillbilly Ranch was in the combat zone, which I think was probably in the, uh in the financial scheme of of whoever held power downtown in Boston in those days. You know, and then you had the Kennedys. Their whole family had grown up nearby in the North End, and the North End wasn't so far away. Um, the only time I would go into Boston was my mother would take me in to go to her dentist, who had worked you know, with her since she was a kid, so, you know, and dentists in those days didn't wear gloves. They <laughs> No, they didn't. <laughs> they they put their fingers in your mouth. And, <laughs> and hope for the best. <laughs> well, they were, you know. Wait, you, you mean your mom didn't take you to Filene's basement? Yes, of course we'd go to Filene's basement. <laughs> but, you know, I would wander off and... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's where you got your school clothes.
0: Yeah, but that's the funny thing about this the backstory on that is that, isn't that the place that they didn't have dressing rooms so people would just be changing and trying on things in the
3: middle of the aisles? Probably. Isles. No, everybody shopped there. Yes. Uh, Bargains. So the hillbilly ranch sprung up there, right there in, uh, behind the trailway bus station, and when I discovered it, a band from West Virginia was playing there, called uh, the um, uh, Lily Brothers," Everett and B. Lily." And the reason they were in Boston was a young man from West Texas named Benjamin Franklin Logan had gotten a scholarship to MIT, and he was a Western swing style fiddler, and a. I think he skipped his senior year at high school to become an early entrance in MIT as a scientist. And this is Tex Logan, the great Tex Logan, who wrote or arranged Christmas times to come in and other tunes that became popular in, with Bill Monroe. And...
1: Larry Keel and Jason played a Tex
3: Logan song for us yesterday. And last
1: night
0: we got one on the show as well.
3: That was, yeah. That was uh, Christmas time's coming. And, yeah, it's a standard. And so Tex got a hold of the the Lily Brothers. I mean, you got to remember in those days, there was no internet. Phone was about it. And the payphone was mostly what you had because nobody c- could carry a phone around. Or opening a window and shouting. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, going to gigs in those days, trying to find out you were lost always... You know, <laughs> yeah, right? That's that's a really good point. Yeah, and you'd have to stop and go over to the payphone, or or even ask at the gas station, because often people knew where places were in those days. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Lilly Brothers were, uh, you, you know, they came up and played on the radio under a Tex Logan's you know partnership with them, uh, and and and. And the communication between bluegrass people was, you know, you knew where... There were like uh, little hideouts. You know, if you're on the road and it's 1 o'clock in the morning and you're in this uh, a car and everybody's totally wiped out, you knew who was within 100 miles where you could maybe land and, and often somebody cook you breakfast and then you'd go on from there. Um, and... So Tex Logan knew the Lilly Brothers in this uh, web. And they were all young at that time. You know, uh, Lily had played with Flattened Scrugs, Scruggs, had played mandolin with Flattened Scrugs, Scruggs uh, in the bluegrass world. And Don Stover had pl- gone and played with Bill Monroe as a banjo player. So you already, the, you had what this, if you look at it like a lineage, you had people in the Lilly Brothers... Themselves who had played with the the top names, Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe, and Flat and Scruggs were Bill Monroe's original band. So you you had to, the genesis of of this bluegrass world, you know, that was very culturally uh, uh, self contained. And then the on the Bill Monroe side of it, you had much more of the blues. And Bill always had, uh, he had black people uh, in his band. He had uh, D. Ford Bailey playing harmonica with him, who wrote the Panamanian blues and the, the Even in Prayer blues. And um, Bill Monroe even had the young Ray Charles open shows for him. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This came to light when uh, a later bunch of players went through Las Vegas with Bill and uh, saw that Ray was playing there and mentioned it. And Bill was sitting there playing solitaire in the front of the bus, you know. And he said, well, I'd sure like to see old Ray. And when you work with Bill Monroe, that kind of a statement means, hey, let's do this. (laughs) But it could be mistaken as uh, like, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) And drive on through the night, you know. But they were coming back from California and they stopped they got the, the the boys at that time understood <clears throat> that <clears throat> presentation is everything. So they, you know, made a deal. I mean, they went in, talked to the hotel. It was Caesar's Palace. They went in and, and they got front row seats, you know, and Bill Monroe was the honored guest. You know, by that time, Bluegrass wasn't, it wasn't like who? You know, everybody pretty much knew who Bill was at that time. He was world famous and, um, I think this was in the 80s, and uh, sure enough, Ray came out and played, and then after the show, they were walking backstage, and and you can imagine in one of those corridors behind Caesar's Palace with a bunch of green rooms and dressing rooms all lined up, and, uh, and here comes Ray down the hallway with his two handlers, right? Ray Charles doing the, the Ray walk and the Ray shuffle, and... <laughs> Here's Bill Monroe, and he's, you know, got the bluegrass boys around him. And and they're like, okay, they're like 25 yards away. Bill takes off his hat and raises up his head and sings, Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. And Ray Charles bursts free of his handlers, you know, guiding him, and runs down the hall into Bill's arms and says, I will never forget you, Bill. You know, Bill gave... His start, but it wasn't something that you know. Nowadays, you know, people w- create their own biographies, you know, and, and say things like, "Have listened to music by," you know, <laughs> "Have gone to concerts by," you know. Yeah. In the, in those days, <laughs> that's mine. I, mean, I, he's, I think he's read our
0: uh, our bio he's read Our bios. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, Bill Monroe. He was so uh, he was such a king that he. He never felt the need to have to uh, promote himself. And that was one of the things that, um, we were doing because we were this new generation. We were in our twenties, Bill Monroe's in his fifties and being, having been part, you know, been to college maybe, you know, or tried to go to college. And, um, so we had contemporaries in the world of the sixties, which were the youth. And, uh, so when we played college gigs, college kids get to see kids their own age playing oh, yeah. playing bluegrass. Like the famous tapes, the uh, University of Wisconsin tape, it's very famous. Uh, it was just one of the last shows and you can hear how the band is so relaxed and so well-versed with uh, um, the material that Bill could relax, you know? And so I worked hard as... Sort of, sort of, Bill's road manager, organizer. To, uh, I mean, it was asked of me to do that. By, C- can we step back just
1: one minute? Yeah, go ahead. Because you often talk about he came up to New England and hired you and Bill Keith and a couple yeah. other folks to do a few shows, and that was really the beginning. Yeah. How did he know of
3: you to hire you? Well, Bill Keith had already worked with Bill Monroe as a bluegrass boy. How did you know Bill? Oh, he, he was my first boss in Boston. Okay. Okay, so I was going to college, uh, and I, as they say, dropped out, took a leave of absence from Colgate University, where I was trying to, you know, do justice to my grandfather's wishes for me to be educated and, uh, you know, supporting me. And, uh... I had a little band up there, you know, and uh, I tried to do everything, but the Shenango Valley in upper state New York is mighty cold. And when it snows in April, you do linger. <laughs> you linger where near the warmth, and the music was the warmth for me up there. It was an all male school, you know. Um, so I came back to, to the Boston area and I got a job in a, a factory there uh, making paint and uh and started just going out to the nightlife that i had learned about but see i was 18 19 i was 20 and um i met a guy i i started meeting people i met uh, jim rooney and bill keith who were already a unit as keith and rooney but they were all uh 5 years older than i and it makes a difference uh when you're still a teenager yeah. and, and the people that you're starting to hang with are in their 20s, they're more sophisticated. And It's amazing how that line, though, blurs as you get older. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it does blur. And now anybody who's within 50 years of each other is <laughs> contemporaries. Yeah. Thank God for that. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I met uh, several people. I met uh, Jim Rooney and Bill Keith. Uh, and then Tex Logan uh, was... A connection down in New York, as was David Grisman. So, uh, and again, this is a small world of bluegrass people, but everybody knows who everybody is. And by reputation, people like Winnie Winston, uh, the New York scene, um, people who are attracted to this music and it's, it's folklore to some degree, uh, and I met a very important person in Boston who was the mandolin player for Bill Keith and Jim Rooney, and his name was Joseph Valiente, and he went by the musical name of Joe Val. Oh, Joe Val. There's a bluegrass festival in his name. They, there is a bluegrass festival in his name, and uh, I I started, I was drawn to Joe. He was more of a country person, and I, I was not a... I didn't have my feet on the ground as far as like even being streetwise in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I mean it was all sort of a urban uh scene. It was a little different, faster than what I was used to, but I was I was fairly country and uh not as they say country as a chicken coop, but maybe <laughs> country as a <laughs> pair of galoshes or something. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so uh, with Joe Val, he started teaching me. And and the idea that I might go with Bill Monroe one day. I mean, I was, let's see, I was still, I was probably 18 or 19. When I would uh, take my mom's station wagon and go pick up Joe after 5 o'clock and bring him out to Wayland, which was about... Fifteen miles from where Joe lived, and we'd go down in to the old barn on my property, my parents' property, and we'd sit around and play in the evening. You know, and Joe was giving up family time for us, and that didn't set well with his uh, his well, his wife. But you know, it, it he made that choice to, to spend time with a young musician like myself and teach me. And what he taught me was the harmony singing, how the Leuven brothers and Blue Sky Boys and Monroe brothers would uh, space their notes, you know, to give that kind of airy, kind of like longing sound, which became the basis of bluegrass singing. Now, when Bill Monroe went out and stretched into bluegrass, different people who joined his band as lead singers would help... uh, Push the music in a certain direction. Like the great Jimmy Martin was very, really picked up on the blues uh, side of Bill. You know, many, and different people like that. And the first guitarist he had was Clyde Moody, who uh, did Six White Horses and uh, played, uh, and all these, uh, played guitar. And all these guys were still alive. That's the thing, is that we, when the first Bluegrass Festival happened in 1964 or five, and Carlton Haney, a promoter from Virginia, brought up brought in every bluegrass band except Flatten Scruggs. But it was like bluegrass uh well there was a rivalry between yeah. Monroe and Flatten Scrugs because Flat and Scruggs had kind of shrugged their shoulder I mean given Bill the cold shoulder and left him and and were very uh very energetically self directed on their own promotion, whereas Bill felt uh, he felt initially there was room for everybody, like when during the '60s when I was with Bill in Nashville, there were what Jim and Jesse, the Osborne Brothers and Bill Monroe and Flatten Scroves. there were four major bluegrass bands on the grand Old Opry, and uh, that's a lot, and they competed. They, it was competition. There yeah. was acrimony at times. Uh, but between some of the folks, but, uh, what happened the first bluegrass festival brought everybody in. All those bands were there. Um, except Flatten Scrugs. Scruggs. Grugs & Scruggs had, uh, had kind of chosen, uh, a, a path of their own refinement and, uh, self image. You know, they were on the Andy Griffith show and doing a lot of different things, uh, on t- Beverly Hillbillies, uh, maybe they didn't do Andy Griffith, but they did the Beverly Hillbillies. That was the theme for the Beverly mm-hmm. Hillbillies. So that was national television. That's that's a big deal. It's big time. Yeah, and you know the Royal especially them when there was only four channels. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> four channels. Everybody saw that. Um, so just to bring that point a little to a close, uh, when Bill Monroe was offered a solo tour. Uh, by a very important person in the whole history named Ralph Rinsler. He had been, Ralph had been mandolin player in the uh, Greenbrier Boys. Um, but he was well educated and uh, he was like the John Hammond was for Columbia Records. Ralph Rinsler was for Bluegrass in that he could see where talent fit together. And he called Bill Keith up and said, you know, Bill Monroe is going to come up and play some solo dates. And Bill, at the time, you see, what Bluegrass was on a slide of unpopularity. It was about to burst back up again with the college kids. But at the time, it was uh, it was country music and very kind of honky-tonk, high reverb. Uh, you know, the whole honky-tonk mystique and stuff that had come from Hank Williams was now a commercial push and uh, even Willie Nelson was still a songwriter in Nashville at that time. Uh, he played the opera a couple of times. That was interesting. Yeah, wearing a Nehru suit. <laughs> he was sixty sort of guy. <laughs> so uh, when when Bill Monroe came up north, it kind of galvanized everybody. Tex Logan played fiddle and he brought a young fiddle player out of New Jersey, Gene Lowinger. And it wasn't like, oh, you're not experienced, you can't play. It was like they just swept us up into the energy of what those guys had been building for years. So Bill Monroe came by himself, and Bill Keith played banjo. And I I moved from mandolin to guitar to play with Bill. <clears throat> I already played guitar, but with Keith and Rooney, I was playing mandolin. And uh, we played three dates uh, up in New England in the country, and ended up playing in Boston at, at Doc Watson's birthday. Uh, Do you remember the venue? Um, I think it was Jordan Hall. Uh, Northeastern. Was it Northeastern? I yeah. think Jordan Hall's in Northeastern. And then there was a hall at Harvard, too, that was... It's a jewel box of a wooden hall. Sanders Theater, Sanders I Sanders Theater. Harvard Hall. <laughs> but I think it might have been Symphony Hall in Boston that we did the show. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, a big theater. And, um, and that was a big moment, you know, to be presented to a larger uh, cross-section of people. Um, and it was well-received, thunderous applause. Yeah, it was sold out. And, but the, the people who were the stars, of course, were Doc Watson and Bill Monroe. And Doc was on the rise. You know, he was probably 36 or seven at the time. I was 21 or 2 Bill Monroe's 51 52 and it, it was like Ralph Rinsler had such a confidence in this music and these characters I mean mm-hmm. these people that once Bill Monroe was presented to the public like that it was his power and his individuality was 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 just self-evident and the music was vibrant and they it was a memorable night uh Doc Watson and Bill Monroe played a, a set together of the old Monroe brothers tunes you know that Bill had played with his, his brother Charlie years ago when they started out and so i mean and they were a huge hit in the south and um
1: but Bill wasn't very forthcoming with compliments generally, but he clearly wanted you to go to Nashville with him. And what did he do to lure you other than say, I can help you? Peter Rollins. I can help you. Nothing. He just said, I can help you? Yeah, no offer, of
3: I'll pay your way, No, nothing like that. Um, you ought to come to Nashville, I can help you. <laughs> that was what he said. Uh, and I don't know if he meant join his band. He might have meant uh, he actually, actually later on offered to manage myself and David Grisman as a duo. Oh. Yeah. But the way Bill said things was like and then and, and it'll say when you come to a show Pete Rones and David Grisman managed by Bill Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what started it. And uh, over the next couple of years you know it we, Bill Keith and I would r- drive to Nashville and go to what they called the DJ convention, which is now fanfare. But the DJ convention at that time was all musicians and DJs and instrument uh, manufacturers. And it was a fantastic get-together because you got to see everybody outside their jobs, you know. And everybody, you found out everybody was paying attention. They knew who you were. Normally, when you're working a show on stage, nobody says hello, and everybody's just doing their thing. So I got to hang out with a lot of people that I admired when we'd go to the DJ conventions, and still probably 20 years old. And I remember going up to the Fender Guitar Room and seeing these steel guitar players, Buddy Emmons and Buddy Charlton, jamming on their steel guitars with their Fender amps and everything and it was jaw dropping they were they were playing duke ellington and and count basie music oh, wow. that's what they were steeped in and i thought you know this is a nashville nobody knows about <laughs> i thought this this might be the bridge between jazz and and the country music players but outside of their own following it never happened nationally you know, those guys never got invited to play Newport or, you know, it, things were com- compartmentalized pretty much. But the music was astounding. And and then that began my my relationship with Nashville through the Grand Old Opry, where backstage there, you'd hear epic jams with people, very casual. But you go back to Ernest Tubbs' dressing room, all tucked way, way in the back of the the Warren of Rooms backstage at the old Ryman Auditorium. And there would be the steel players. There'd be three or four steels all put it like squared up against each other. (laughs) And all these guys in their opera uniforms, you know, cowboy hats and steel-toed boots, just jamming away, you know. And then they're going to get back on their buses and drive out of Nashville that night and be in Oklahoma for the matinee the next day, you know. So it was that world, the world of country music of Hank Snow and Ernest Tubb.
4: We climbed upon a mountain, Bill Monroe and I, so I could see the light that shines in Carter's Stanley's eyes.
3: Bill Monroe had me drive him from Tennessee up to the Clinch Mountains to meet with Carter Stanley at the Stanley Brothers' old home place. And we cut up on that mountain to a cleared field and there was Carter sitting there. I think he wanted to see Bill because he had a feeling of mortality at that time. And Bill Monroe introduced me to Carter Stanley and said, Carter, this here's Pete Rhodes. He thinks he's a bluegrass boy. He said, are you going to stick with it, son? I said, yes, sir. Carter looked at Bill Monroe and said, well, all right. And Bill looked at Carter and said, you were one of the best of the Bluegrass Boys, Carter, and my favorite lead singer. And we shared something in that moment, kind of a portal that might have opened up about the music. And I could see the light that shines in Carter Stanley's eyes. How long after you moved to Nashville
1: did Bill take you to Carter Stanley's house?
3: Well, I had become a member of the band by then. And it wasn't to Carter's house. It was to, I don't know, it was Meeting Outdoors. It was Uh, in Clinch Mountain, though, right? In in the Clinch Mountains, yeah. It was near the Carter, the Stanley brothers' home place. But uh, what you're referring to here is uh, my song, Carter Stanley's Eyes. No, I'd been in the uh, Bluegrass Boys, probably 1965. I'd been with Bill for about a year. And I did a lot of the driving, you know. And uh, I used to ask Bill, I'm a terrible driver. Why do you want me to drive the car? And he said, Pete, a man has to learn to be a driver. <laughs> <laughs> But you would you have said also that after you drove
1: for six or seven hours, you felt emboldened to pick his brain a little bit, right?
3: Well, yeah, you, you know, like earned your if, earned your time. Yeah, if you put in the, those hours, and it's now one o'clock in the morning, and and you've just finished your shift, and you hear the sound of a mandolin. For me, it was just obvious. You go where that where's that happening? And the bus wasn't very big. Uh, it you just. If you're driving the bus, you can hear Bill fooling around on the mandolin. And, uh, I mean, in my memory, it it's like a, sort of a nightly occurrence. And it was. But there were certain times when, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the story I tell is the night, around the time we began uh, writing The Walls of Time, Uh, Which you wrote with Bill. Yeah, yeah. Now, in those days, you know, even I, uh, I've heard myself say on tape at a Tex Logan house party introducing a song uh, that, after I had been with Bill, introducing it as a song that he wrote. Uh, And that was out of deference to him as the leader. But... I never stood up for myself while I was in the band saying, this is my, sec- my, I wrote this song with you. It was after that I left and went back to Nashville in the 80s that I called him up and I said, Bill, you know, I'd, it's been a long time. And you know, I saw him a lot. You know, I sat in with him and he was very generous. I said, I'd like to, I know it's late, but I'd like to claim my share of the walls of time. It's clearly, clearly in your voice, lyrically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and he said, Pete, you know, you when you left, you. he basically said you didn't ask for your share. So, you, you know, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, it's not something you could say, but I did write it with you, right? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, you just don't say those things. But because my relationship with Bill was very close and, and we knew we wrote it together. There was no doubt about it. But um, I was intimidated by Bill. And I, I, I didn't stand up for myself. And that was... I learned a lot. But by being the dri- one of the bus drivers and a, playing in the band and booking the shows, I ended up booking the shows at the request of Ralph Rinsler, who was then focusing more on Doc Watson. Uh you can be too much of "I'll do everything" kind of person, to because you're standing up for this person. I'm going around town saying Bill Monroe is great. Let's can you help me book him? And everybody sort of laughs and go, "Oh, Bill, yeah, yeah, he is great." You know, he's a might hard to work with. Pete, have you found that yet? And I'm like, I work with him. I mean, it was I was 23, so <laughs> it's like, <clears throat> you know, I was in charge of his career, briefly. I'm the guy who got, chose a certain album cover picture. Uh, you know, but Bill was, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not hidebound, but um, slightly embattled by the changes in music business. Because on one level, he was an aging, beginning to age, Nowadays, 50 years old is nothing. But in those days, it's like Bill, is. he's had it. You know, Monroe is great. He's cantankerous. You can't work with him. He won't do anything you say. And embattled. He was sort of like embattled and was very defensive about everything. And when Ralph Rensler told me to sell records at the gigs, I'm like, really? How do you do that? And he said, just walk up and down the aisles and hold the record up. <laughs> you know, it's like be a carney, you know, and it was like, I didn't ask Bill, I just went over to Decca, and he, they gave me a dozen records, and we went to the show, and I was walking up and down the aisles, nobody bought a record at a show, it was like, ridiculous, and I got back to the dressing room, and Bill was, was furious, he he was like, uh, well, what are you doing, Pete Rones you know, and I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to sell your records, he said, you're keeping all the money, aren't you, and I'm like, <laughs> There is no money. I paid for these. <laughs> you know, but I didn't understand the subtleties of Bill's individuality completely. The wind is blowing across the mountain
4: and down over the valley way below. It sweeps the grave of my darling. Can I die?
1: often talk about the Joni Mitchell expression, Kill Mommy, where if a musician is too much of an influence on you that you have to completely stop listening to their music, and there's a form of it with you, is that Bill was impressed with your singing, but he felt sometimes, and I think maybe in part for your own good, but and also in part for proprietary, looking out for his own self, mm-hmm. that you sounded too much like him, and that he would even, while you're singing, and he's chopping the mandolin behind you, even bark at you sometimes, saying, sing like Peter Rowan. Yeah, right?
3: that's true. He did that. You know, I don't think it was... a uh I think being a band leader and an experienced singer and having worked on his own style, I mean, he said several key things. One was, uh, I've had to keep as much out of bluegrass as I put in it uh, to make my music the way I wanted it. Meaning, he really thought about his approach. And he had, to, uh, I, I had one actual Singing lesson from him when I was trying to sing a song, and I was very uh, much um, moved by uh, the singing of John Duffy of the Country Gentleman. Hmm. He had a wonderful high voice and very um, sort of emotional flexibility in his voice, and uh, he was one of the influences. Uh, I was a kid, so I was was reflecting influences and i sang the the opening lines of this song poor, poor Alan smith and i had heard, learned it from doc watson and when i wanted to sing it as a solo song bill shot me down and said no i think it was the wrong material first of all it was a murder ballad you know and it wasn't wasn't what bill wanted in his show as right. a as as his lead guitar his his lead singer singing a solo he chose uh, Wash My Hands in Muddy Water as my solo tune and uh, I wished I had followed up with that and made it my own because I realized that he didn't want me to I was following Del McCurry and he didn't Bill didn't want me to be another Del McCurry and but I adopted Dark Hollow which was Del's solo piece and I thought that was what the guitarist did in Bill's band. I thought that was the number you learned. And but you know, it wasn't that I was able to really sing like other people, is that the influences were unformed. And I was doing maybe in what were really bad imitations of other people, but but not not all the way bad imitations. I mean it's just that I didn't have my own voice. I, you know, they speak of finding your voice, right? It's part of owning the song. Um, so it's the search for finding your own voice that it's talking about. And I didn't. It. it I didn't ever really think about it. It never really happened. I never went. Oh, I got to really find my own voice, and then stop listening to other people or anything like that but I had already been through the influences of other people singing and what I realized only thing I realized was uh clarity is is it, let the voice do the work and uh, I mean I can hear in my older recordings I put a lot into the vo- vocals I mean um, emotional investment in the vocals and there's a way to do that that is more natural than making a, an effort. But it's a big subject. Uh, at what point do you? At what point in your career did you actually find your voice? I, well, olden in the way was pretty natural. Didn't wasn't really thinking about how I sounded. Uh, it was the music d- drove drove the development of the vocal style. But my own personal feeling that I didn't, I think it, well it's hard to say, you know, I probably have had moments of my own voice forever, but but when I got really comfortable with what I did is when I, I think you can hear it on the album, Awake Me in the New World, Ragabilly, Uh it's like I'm so excited by the music that I'm more relaxed by just delivering a, a natural kind of vocal. And and those aren't bluegrass records.
0: No, on that note, too, uh, with the reggae influence, were you listening to reggae back back in the day, or is that, or, or is that something that came no, new to Bob, you? No, uh, Bob,
3: that came ap- uh, uh, just after Olden and the Way in the 70s, when Bob Marley arrived in San Francisco. And my brothers and I, I was playing with my two brothers, and... We would go hear all Bob's shows because we had played the club, so we got in free. <laughs> the boarding house, and uh, oh yeah, sitting backstage there, zonked and uh, absorbing the 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 groove. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's a deep connection there. In in uh, you know, it's it's not all obvious. One of the most obvious things is the chop on the guitar and the chop on the mandolin, of course. That's a very, very yeah. close musical uh, approach. If you don't
1: mind, just a couple more things on Bill Monroe. No, yeah, that, I know. yeah. Because Chubby Wise is a, is a fiddle player who heard that there was a space, came up from Florida, and Bill Monroe seemed to hire him rather hastily, yet ended up spending hours and hours in a hotel room with exacting things that he wanted. Do you find that interesting that he was so quick to choose people but then very exacting once he
3: chose them well I had not heard that story uh, Ronnie McCurry knows a lot of the the history and the folklore as the, most of the Bluegrass Boys because you know Bill would open up you just have to, had to find your op- your moment with him and then he'd talk about the influence of New Orleans on his music and all this stuff but he wasn't somebody forthcoming to just uh, you had to you had to probe him kind of get into it a little bit and you know it's a very intimate relationship with him playing music you know I mean, we're we're on stage every night shoulder to shoulder singing through one microphone and uh, you you become deep partners you know deeper than boss and sideman uh which leads to a lot of confusion at times, right? Because you have to always remember uh, that Bill is the boss. And uh, I was asked to join another bluegrass band on the Opry when I was going to leave Bill, or I was actually they were going to try and take me away from Bill. And the leader of the band said, "And you've got to," I'm, he said. No matter what happens, he says, "I'm the boss of this band." It was like you, before you decide you want to join my band, you've got to understand i'm the boss, and that was just something I think that people who had some experience with sidemen understood at the time that there is a boss. you know Bill never said anything like that he never I heard other people say i 'm the boss, but I never heard Bill Monroe ever have to declaim that um, that he was the the, the, I mean, it was—it was evident. It was that without, uh, without any, uh, any doubt that he was the boss. Well, let me get back to what you asked because it's very interesting. Uh, so this story of Chubby—that's where you see bluegrass had become a style by the time I joined. So we we learned the records and pretty much, you know. I learned a bunch of Bill's duets that nobody else sang with him that he had done in the past, and he liked that. You know, I knew some of the old material, so if some fan asked for a song that he had done a little obscure, maybe I, uh, you know, uh, there there were iconic songs floating around, like the Seven Year Blues and uh, some of these Leuven Brothers uh Duets, and Bill did some of them. Uh, my uh, my duet with Bill that I chose, beyond uh, the standard "Can't You Hear Me Calling," which was like always the first up tempo duet in the set, was a, a song called "The Old Kentucky Shore," that has its own history, uh, and I learned it and. I don't think Bill had sung it since Jimmy Martin had been in the band, and and he liked that about me that I had dug into his material. But as far as finding your own voice, I mean, you're standing next to Bill Monroe. I'm trying to match my voice to him, but it's not what he wanted. He didn't want you to sing like him so that you were like a second Bill Monroe voice. He wanted your voice, uh, to be uh, naturally, uh. uh Naturally, c- counter to him, maybe a little less of the uh, harshness of his tenor, um, a little more sweeter on the low end. Uh, and Lester Flat was a master of, of the, he was the original bluegrass boy singer. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me to hear that Bill sat down, but by the time we joined, you know, rehearsals were just Bill listening to us play and opening his royalty statements.
0: (laughs) 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 Thank you, (laughs) Um, Um,
3: Elvis. Let me finish that idea a little bit more, uh, because Vassar Clemens uh, told me a lot about Chubby.
1: And let's also point out yesterday's holiday hootenanny here in Atlanta, Georgia, was a tribute to
3: Vassar Clemens. Yeah, which, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure the audience understood Oh, unless it's a very knowledgeable audience, but the the whole set that the fiddle players played in the beginning was all Vassar's music, which uh, was a real highlight, Tom, that was really beautiful. Um, so Vassar Clements, we'll put it this way, when Bill was forming what he wanted, he had had uh, Art Wooten play fiddle, Clyde Clyde, uh, Moody played guitar and a bass player. And that was the Bluegrass Boys initially. Then he added accordion. Then he left the accordion behind. When the young Earl Scruggs came up playing the five-string banjo, it was an innovative style. And Bill, after years of just saying, no, it's what I wanted, finally began to... uh, Pete Wernick of hot rise the banjo player has done years of interviews with bill 30 years of interviews and and near the end near the last interviews bill is way more openly generous about what people brought he said every every member of the band brought something new which is like really oh that's good to know um i mean you never heard about this before yeah (laughs) um no, but what you're pointing out something very interesting, you know, because the uh, people hear bluegrass as a, a style that they emulate, but still, y- you can be much more deeply involved in it than just simply having gone to music school and becoming an expert on your instrument. You know, the heart to me, of course, the heart of singing is. In bluegrass, the heart of bluegrass is the singing and the telling of the stories uh, through the songs. Now, we're speaking to an audience that probably knows these names. I maybe you know some. When you say Chubby Wise, we're talking about a fiddle player who was Bill's, like Earl Scruggs of the fiddle. When Bill heard Chubby play, there was a mellifluousness and a flow in his playing and a use of what we call the long bow the long note you know did 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 that long bow is uh the long note is is a hallmark of uh bluegrass fiddle playing and it's part of the vocal too so when bill heard this young fella from florida he wanted to guide him towards he he heard the opening he said this is what i'm looking for and but it's what Chubby was bringing in, too. Chubby had it. But Bill wanted to bring out that uh, that flow. And he certainly did. Now, jump to a young Vassar Clemens, 14 years old, hanging out at Bill Monroe shows, listening to Chubby Wise. And Chubby going, Bill, here's you. This is going to be your next fiddler. He's the he's the best. And, and young Vassar playing for Bill at 14. You know, think of that. And... Vassar was Chubby's protege. And so this lineage of, of musicians and musical heritage that comes down through one man's band kept refining the sound. The sound became more and more what Bill was hoping it to be, you know. And, uh, and what we... When we do bluegrass, well, when I do bluegrass... You're, there's sort of an, an an anchor of that approach in there, and it has to come through the vocal to be the anchor, you know. And for me, uh, for Jason Carter on the fiddle, it's going to come through the fiddle. But it's like, uh, you know, there's a shorthand way of speaking of it. We just say on the one that it's the downbeat you know and that's a musician term uh you know if if we've just done a little rehearsal and i'm going to meet you later and at the gig i would say what time is the downbeat you know <laughs> and uh it's it's the first note it's the first explosive uh ensemble hitting the hitting the note together hitting the downbeat that kicks off everything. Our names are carved up on the tombstone,
4: I promised to you before you die.
0: Peter own part one, we got more for you in part two, and Rob, tell everyone just briefly what they're going to miss if they don't listen to part two.
1: Well, we get into how he found his own voice, we get into what, how the bluegrass world reacted when he uh, and Grisman decided they are going to play with Jerry Garcia Olden and Olden in the Way, and um, we talk about all the different musicians he's played with along the years.
0: Um, go ahead, Seth. Navajo, that's what you were asking me about.
1: Ah
0: well we'll get to that. Let's first talk about the weekend. Uh well the great band, uh I can't feel my face when I think is it can't feel my face. I went to Nashville. I can't feel my face and I found that the weekend Yeah, no. no.
1: That's the song, the band, The Weekend. Yeah, that's Can't Feel My Face. Hilarious. No, but last weekend I went to Nashville and um because well Great Peacock was doing dates with infamous string dusters. But I also yes. wanted to see Humphries at the Ryman.
0: Mm-hmm. So this, this that was a beautiful venue. I've never been there. I'm so jealous.
1: String Dusters Peacock were in Nashville on Friday,
0: and where, in Atlanta where, what, what's Saturday. The, what's your, what
1: show venue at, at Nashville? You really? You cut me off to say something while you're yawning. <laughs> You really have to be more selective. During Jam and Trump, you cut me off to say that you didn't have anything funny to say. <laughs> I did. What
0: venue did they play in Nashville? Sorry. It's called Marathon Music Works. It's Thank kind you. of
1: a flat place. When I was up front, the sound was good. I'm told that the sound isn't always that great. And I could tell if you weren't in certain parts of the building, it's not great sound. But I'll tell you, they had really good tacos. You and I got to hang out with, with the Peacock guys a good bit. It was great. That's what they said, although they didn't say great. Oh, sure. They told me, I wish I could say some of the things they have coming up, but they have really exciting oh stuff. God. The peak of what? You know, we're less surprised at their success than they are. They seem surprised, and we're like, no, you guys
0: are really talented. Do you know their bass player? They're so ho-humming. Works at the Variety Playhouse, Frank. Well, he also does some publicity work. Yeah, but I, I forgot that's who he is. And I'm, I'm, I just recognized him in the band, and then I forgot that he also was a variety. I have anyway, problem. it's really weird. I have a problem with out of context things as well.
1: Of, yeah. If I ever don't recognize you because of you're in a completely different context, please apologize. You know, when you're around this music for like Please 30, 40 apologize. Years, hey, please so, allow me to I,
0: I'm so sorry, Rob, you don't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> please. Please. <laughs> if I fuck up, you better apologize to me. <laughs> hey Rob, I'm so sorry you you got my name wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but the
1: string dusters headline, they were great, and you know how I'm not always big on the covers. I'm sorry, you're not always big on the... I'm not a big fan of covers covers. always. I prefer to hear a band do originals, especially a band like the
0: Stringdusters, who has five great songwriters. Sure, sure. But remember that you just said the covers piece, because I wanted to say something to you.
1: Well, they they did, at this show, they did Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Really? Into Fearless by Pink Floyd, and I gotta tell you, it was Mm. pretty strong. It was outstanding. The whole first set was great. Second set was strong, too, but I, I really, the first set, they
0: took me away in a big way. Nice. Especially the one we haven't interviewed, <laughs> and uh, there's a new podcast coming out from the Dusters. Uh, Chris oh, there is. is? Yeah, yeah, he's not from us, but um, oh, uh, we'll be Chris, part of it. I'm sure. Chris is our boy. He is starting his own podcast on the Osiris Network, and he's already got five interviews under his belt, and he's going to restart releasing them. So we'll we'll share. I think we'll we'll do a little cross pollination on that one. I want
1: to. I want to be on this show. I want to, I'm gonna get all pushy. He was excited though. Uh,
0: I'm going. I'm already talking about my weekend. So you keep going with. Him. I might Sorry. get to do some stuff with Michael Shields too. Uh, when I'm
1: up and up north, I'm going to be up north from mid June to mid July. If anybody wants to do any interviews with me, I like doing them in person. I'm not a big phone guy. I much prefer to do them in person.
0: Yeah, he's a big text guy. Trust me, though. He's text. Yeah, my God, be Jesus Christ, what's this guy? If he doesn't text you, he'll get you. He's like my mother, but the difference. You're is are always trying to make me. You're comparing no, no. me to your
1: ex-wife and your mother all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think the, they're forced
0: analogies. Well, um, It's kind of like having another wife, okay? That is true. Uh-huh. And that's true. But, Rob, you're the guy that, like, texts me, and then if, you, if I don't text you back, you go on Twitter and go, I just want you to know I texted you.
1: So, Humphreys was at the Ryman that, that night. I didn't get to see him that night, but, but I finally... That's
0: weird. You were in... I love the Whoa. Street Dusters and the Peacock. I wanted to see that bill. And Waffle Jefferson, Waffle was okay with you missing. No, he was pissy about it, but whatever. He's pissy about a lot
1: of things, but I still love him. Um, Actually, I'll be. Well, I can't tell. I'll tell you about that after. (laughs) But um, be a Camden, see all at Camden. Um, Doom flamingo, dude. Doom flamingo's awesome. Kanika Moore vocals. They they did synth pop. They did like uh, Nine Inch Nails covers. They did like a synth pop version of Legs by ZZ Top. I'm
0: sorry, I'm confused. Hmm. I'm, I'm confused. It was a late
1: night show. Okay, sorry. Got at Cannery know. Row. I think it, uh, it's Mercy Lounge, but it was definitely a Cannery of the Row. Free parking, hot dogs out and burgers outside for free. Not for free, but being sold right outside. So, you know, people, people who came from the Ryman were, a lot of them were hungry. And who's in the band? Well, this guy, Thomas Kenny, is a fuck killer
0: guitar player. Was he. Was he in Brothers? I'm not sure. Also Mike is?
1: Quinn on sax, and he was playing a little keys at the show. Ross Bogan was a main key guy and the keyboard guy and Stu White. Um I kept seeing Myers. I thought he was gonna sit in, but he was just kind of kind of I don't know, buzzing around on the side of the stage, being goofy, being Myers. Oh, bass was Ryan Stasick. That's right. I forgot to mention. That's why. So Umfries wasn't um Umfries was in town. I didn't go to their show, but I did finally get to see Ryan's side project. The six headed synthwave
4: beast. It is Doom
1: Flamingo. Okay. <laughs> Folks, you want to check them out if you're into that sort of thing. DoomFlamingo.com. They're going to be at the, you know, have you heard was of the this fr- French this? Broad River special uh, festival yeah, in of course. Hot Springs? Yeah. They're playing that. Oh, cool. Um, they're playing the Charleston Poorhouse at the end of the month. That'll probably sell out. I'd be tempted to go to that. Jay. Um, Ryan's doing something with Brendan in Charleston, too. I might have to hit coming up. They're, they're, excuse me, they're playing summer camp. You can hear about Joel babbles endlessly about that on the uh, on the drop. I had to skip over it. It and was then too there's much. A, there's
0: a field and we play the field. Then at night, people hang out. They Joel was really just babbling. Late. You know, he talks <laughs> about
1: how he skips over our intro. And that's, I did the same thing to him. I skipped right. I want to hear Mudeski. Mudeski was on with he the skips. No Simple Road guys, not he, guy. Do you like the No Simple Road? Huh? I'm starting I'm starting to listen to it more. I, I didn't get it at first. You have to the more you listen to it, the more you get that why people are into it. It's a very, very cool podcast. Disc Jam also part of the Osiris. Also network. part of the Osiris uh, actually one of the bigger ones, I think. They have a huge listenership. Do they really? The Disc Jam oh, Music nice. Festival, June eighth. Doom Flamingo's hitting that. That's in Steventown, New York. And Cervantes, Cervantes. In Denver in the middle of
0: the Red Rocks run, and then Electric Force. Which I guess we're not going are back.
1: We, are we going back? No.
0: Well, uh, the company that I sold to my ex-wife, Work Exchange Team, is actually you can sign up to be a fan staff member still at Work Exchange. Oh, so I can go with your ex-wife. You are more than welcome to. Uh, but she's still I, single. I, I, yeah, I don't think she's been on a date. But we, nice. uh, if you want, can go to Denver. What does she like for dinner? Where should I take her? Uh, a place that doesn't serve salt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, can I tell you about my weekend, Rob? right. My son turned six, and we had a wonderful birthday party for him at the skate park. Wonderful (laughs) friends, and one of the most glorious days. He got a ukulele, an electric ukulele. That was electric ukulele. Yes, Eddie Vedder has one of those. He is picking it up really quickly. It's amazing. I mean, dude, we got to play soon. Forget for him. We got to play some of the Eddie ukulele. I'll buy the Eddie ukulele CD. Oh, no, I'll give it to him. Just, we'll Spotify it, don't worry. Uh, but we, we've been listening to ukulele music like crazy, and, and it's been fun. On Saturday, though, if after...
1: you like ukulele, lady, promise it'll never be true. If you like ukulele, lady, ukulele, lady, like a you.
0: Whoo! So Saturday, that was Saturday afternoon, day drinking. Thank you, th- my son, six years old. His birthday party sponsored by Terrapin Beer and Bojanic. How many did your son drink? <laughs> He drank the root beer no it was a beautiful day so then you know day drinking and whatnot uh, I go then Saturday night and I get in time for great peacock to open for the dusters over at variety playhouse and Rob the peacock they played so well they are great now the sound of the variety playhouse they filled this the room with immense sound it was so dialed in. I, I kept going to Matt. I'm like, "Matt, it was their manager, Matthew Wilson, an amazing lawyer as well. I'm like, what is going on?" Handsome do they, man. Do they have a sound engineer now? He goes, "No. The variety sounds engineer dialed them in, in. So good. It was incredible. I am telling you. I'm going to say it one more time. The sound of the room was perfect, okay? So, then as the as as the set developed, they played a Neil Young. They played Cortez. Now, they started Cortez and it was really fast and I didn't quite get. It was Cortez. And then I got it was Cortez, and I was so excited because Rob, how often am I at the Variety Playhouse yelling at bands <coughs> Built a Spill oh, to man. play he Cortez?
1: Right at Built a Spill, right at their face. And nothing. They probably talk about it on the road. Yeah, well, they're coming check back, out their, so I will. Check out Great Peacock's record, Grand Pavo Real. Or is it Real? Grand Pavo
0: Real? Well, they their their performance was great. Now, as the as they're opening, right, the crowds coming in. Yes. And then all of a sudden, it was so – and I, I I interviewed them after, and we talk about this, and I'll share this at another time, maybe some tweener or something like that. Anyway, we talk about it, but their placement for the Tom Petty song that they did uh, was perfect, and they got every – I mean, all of a sudden, the crowd really – it went from 100 people to 1,000, like like that, right? And the, And everyone comes in, and everyone knows the song, and – and is singing it and feeling it, and then they drop into some more originals right after that because now they got the attention of the crowd, and they close out and getting everyone to sing and harmonize the with them.
1: Do they do the Petty cover too? Oh, we got you don't know how it feels. In That's what I said.
0: I just yeah, literally yeah. just said that. Right. I said Tom Petty. That's what I was talking about. But you don't know how
1: it feels. That's, I just wanted to make sure you get the song.
0: Oh, I did. I didn't say the song. Get. To the point they're gonna roll another joint. And what are they talking every, about there? Yeah, everybody uh, well everyone got in it and then they closed with a song that was an original and they got everyone to harmonize and sing the you know, the the callback. But my point is it was a phenomenal set for them. They really brought it. Now oh and then and then uh Blunt, like I don't know if he's taking dance lessons from uh My Morning Jacket or what, but um but yeah, he's got... It's he, the poncho. Yeah, the poncho, but also the hair. and like He's got the Jim James. He's, he's, he's pulling the Jim James dance moves lately. That's not a serious poncho. It's a Mexican poncho. The, it's, but he's got a lot of great energy. And those two, Andrew and he, compliment themselves really well. Andrew band,
1: Nelson is a great vocalist and guitarist. I love And the guy. songwriter. Uh, yes. These songs are so good. I try not good. to gush over him too much when I'm with him. But he does seem real like he doesn't...
0: He's he's, he's really humble. He's a very sensitive man, sensitive artist. He's, God, he's so sensitive. So many fucking
1: so sensitive, sensitive artists in the world, you know. Well, and Frank Keith, as you point out, uh, you know, works sometimes at the variety. So that must have been kind of cool to be on the stage in front of a full variety You're near
0: full. Yeah, it was it was full, and then and then uh, and then string good Dusters good Dusters are so came awesome. on and love them, and they encored so with um the. Peacock coming out and doing an encore with them as a band song. I forget which one, but it was it was really well done. You told me that. Um, oh, gosh. But, but the point is, the Dusters were great, had a, a phenomenal set, and they're, they're, uh, they had Tony uh, Hume. Remember Tony Hume? He was yes. there helping yes. uh, tour manage with Katrina. I think Katrina uh, is looking to move on and do something different. So I hope, Tony I hope goes Tony back gets, to the Colonel world, right? Yes, he does, and I hope he gets a job. I highly suggest it. Um, All right, we're running a little long here. All right, but There's, the point is, it was a fun show, enjoyed it, and I'm really looking forward to the stuff coming up. I want to let everyone know on the quick, 420 Festival, Inside Out will not be doing anything major there, but I will be there yet. with Ho- the four. No, we're not doing anything. We might do something like interview-wise. Yeah, but we've got a couple little small chances of some interviews. All these artists—they're flying in and out. It's 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 Passover, yeah. so the Jewish bands are like, uh, and then all it's an the excuse. and all the Christian it, bands are like it's Easter, so they're like it's, I'm just hopping in and hopping out. I mean, it's, it's crazy. an excuse
1: if bands are, if they want to make time, they make time.
0: So we'll see what happens. But I will be there doing the 419. Got a minute to give auction. Your auctioneer is going to be doing stuff, and we'll have some podcast stuff going on there as well in the contest. So if you listen closely, watch our uh, Facebook and socials, we'll we'll be announcing, and there's going to be a lot of cool auction items and experiences. So
1: we're going to end this episode with a... uh, I mean, Land of the Navajo is almost (gasps) always wonderful with Peter Rowan, but this version is stellar. And one of the things that Seth happened to be down on the floor, which usually I have to get away from Seth to go up front and lose myself in, in... In a show, I was really, really pleased that Seth was uh, as excited to see Peter Rowan as I was, and you were right up front for the whole set. Except you went and got us a drink at one point, which, by the way, thank you. And that was you got back right in time for this. But you always make fun of how I turn my head when, particularly when I'm listening to someone, like a dog that has Mm -hmm. a treat ahead of it. I have photos. I have a
0: whole 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 stream of
1: photos. One day I'll release. I say that with my dog right here, stretching out and telling me me she's she's ready to go, dude. Um, But Peter Rowan. You know, often does that when he's singing, and with "Land of a Ado- of no- of Land of Land When he uh, is doing the yodeling, he totally turns it. And so I was like pointing it out <laughs> that Peter was making the head turn cool. And I think people who might have thought we were mocking him, we're not mocking him at all. <laughs> no. I was getting gaining strength in my head tilt obnoxiousness. Another thing that Joel's pointed out to me: he's got to cut back on the on, on pointing st- stuff out to me on Twitter. He's got to cut back on the kind of too.
0: Kind of. Kind All of. right. You can save your bromance for another time. Rob, this is Thanks. kind of welcome uh, back. A cut Great from the kind you. of Hoot Nanny. What kind of was it's the
1: kind band of a version of Tony and a kind Hume of song was that was on the kind of old in the way release? Kind of mid 70s, kind of bluegrass. Chilicote.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Stick around next week for part two. We've got a lot more stuff coming up. we got great interviews coming up on the horizon. We're looking forward to Rob, stick in town. Come with me on Saturday. I'm doing the Passover Seder. Maybe Dark Star Orchestra's now. At, oh, like you've never seen them. I like going for the beginning and figuring out, figuring out the show. <sighs> so lame. No, not, not the band I'm talking about you me yes, yes. the band
1: is actually quite the opposite of way yeah, just
0: whatever just, go, just, just come to, to I'll come kind to of, of do her. Both.
1: I'll kind of find a way to kind of do both how about I give you free wine alright I'm there yeah
0: alright a- folks a- check. A-
1: check this out folks and we really appreciate you listening kind of